Hello, you're listening to The History of Now, a podcast run from the History Faculty of the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked down living room just north of the River Cam. The podcast is about how the past can help us to think about the present. And right now we're running a series of episodes on issues related to the crisis triggered by the current COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Clark, and my conversation partner today is the science journalist, Laura Spinney. Laura is the author of many books and articles, but particularly relevant to today's discussion is a book that appeared with Jonathan Cape to rapturous reviews in 2017 under the title, Pale Rider, the Spanish flu of 1918 and how it changed the world. Laura, this book came out in 2017, a, a, a world unimaginably remote from the present in which we have not yet made the acquaintance of SARS-CoV-2. Have you noticed the difference? <laughs> yes, I certainly have. I mean, I wrote that book because I felt there was a sort of hole in our historical memory and our collective memory for that catastrophe. And three years on, I find myself talking about almost nothing else. So um, things have changed radically, and there's a certain irony to that too, of course. I can, I can well imagine. And I mean, as one reads your book, which, by the way, is a fantastic book. It's beautifully written and, and wonderful panoramic analytical and now, uh, study of this, of this you know, traumatic event. Um, yeah. One can't help but be struck by the parallels with the present. And I want to come um, back to them towards the end of our discussion. But, but, but I want to begin with, the, with something you just touched on as well, which is that this pandemic has weirdly been forgotten. I mean, it killed between 50 and a million, 100 million human beings, um, more, perhaps as much as 10 times more than the First World War. Um, it certainly killed more Americans than uh, were killed in the First World War. Why is it that we forget events on this scale? I mean, it's surprisingly controversial um, to say that it's forgotten. There's lots of people who get very angry about that and say, of course, it hasn't been forgotten at all. And in some sense, they're right. I mean, if we're talking, you know, we're talking about COVID now, everybody is seeking parallels with 1918. And we can talk, if you like, about whether those appropriate or not. Um, but so I, it was there, clearly, dormant, latent. Um, I mean, in my book, I suggested that somehow we remembered the uh, pandemic uh, as, as millions of discrete tragedies. You know, people have that memory often mm. in their family, but that somehow it didn't coalesce into um, a collective memory, something we consider as, as, as an event that happened to humanity and that belongs in history books. And I think it's still the case that if you were to stop the average person in the straight street and say, what were the major historical events of the 20th century? Or the, or the major catastrophes, I don't think the average person would mention the Spanish flu. Absolutely. And I mean, it's not just it's not just the Spanish flu either. I mean, the fact that, for example, a massive smallpox epidemic was raging during the American Revolution, which killed more people than the, revo the, the violence of the revolution itself. And mm. yet also, I mean, of as you say, you're right, of course, there's these things haven't been forgotten and there's an increasingly sophisticated specialist literature about the history of epidemics and, and so on. But it mm. is a specialist literature. And yeah, one thing exactly. is to which we've failed to, and that's what precisely what your book does, is to integrate this experience into what we call history with a capital H, you know, the big narratives that interest us. Do you think gender plays a role here? I mean... Um, <laughs> good question. Good question. I, I wonder if it does, um, you know, if somehow a pandemic is a sort of female disaster somehow and, and war. Because if, if you push this question 
at all far. You you basically it boils down to why do we remember wars and we don't remember pandemics because those tend to be the two major causes of loss of life. Uh, yeah, and they often come together. Yeah, of course they often come together. Wars bring pandemics in their wake and and so on. Um, but we remember wars and we don't remember pandemics. It's just an incontrovertible fact. Um, I think there are many factors that go into that. I think somehow there is a storytelling element so that wars seem to lend themselves to storytelling in the way that we like to do it. They're kind of linear. They have a nice, clear declaration at the beginning, turning points often, and then, you know, truces and armistices at the end. And pandemics don't do any of those neat things. They're they're sort of suddenly there everywhere. Um, uh, They come backwards and forwards, uh, you know, rippling across the world and back again um, in a very inconvenient way. And then they sort of slowly recede and nobody knows when they're actually over. And also the issue of um, sort of who is a hero and who is a villain. It's very clear in a in a in a in a war, and, and that lends an aspect of sort of glamour and legend and and myth and um, uh, you know all sorts of tr- puts all, pushes all sorts of moral buttons, um, outrage and and um, you know positive emotions, which pandemics don't. I mean, who are the her- heroes? The heroes are doctors and nurses who often go unsung who are just doing their jobs in some sense. The, vi- the villain is an invisible microbe. Um, I wondered also at one point if it was something to do with the core experience, i.e. the core experience in a pandemic is illness, which is the same for each individual that's affected and rather, let's face it, disgusting, something we don't really want to think about or, or visualise or talk about. Mm. But then I don't think that's right because the core experience in a war is also pretty disgusting. Mm. Um, dying of a bayonet wound or whatever if you think about the war war as it was fought at at that time anyway um so i don't think it's that a war correspondent i was chatting to about this the other day suggested that it was to do with the imagery that we i mean for example think about this pandemic today we have all sorts of methods and technologies for making things visual and yet you're not seeing pictures of the dying and the sick and thank goodness their privacy is being respected old people in homes and hospitals and so on but you often do have images of people dying in wars and so there's somehow more of a visual evidentiary record for a war and I wonder if that lends that kind of fuels the ability to remember it better. That's fascinating I mean lots of fascinating suggestions there I mean I think what you say linearity is right too and we, we're feeling that at the, well, the lack of linearity in, in the pandemic experience we're feeling that right at the moment the way that time pools around what we do and that a lot of our own personal linear narratives especially for younger people who are approaching major rites of passage leaving school mm-hmm. leaving university um, are suspended and replaced by a kind of hiatus which yeah. isn't isn't susceptible to the kind of, as you say, to the kind of, you know, linear driving progressive narratives that we that we prefer and that we organize our the, the kinds of stories we call history around. Um, this disease, the Spanish flu or the Spanish influenza, um, I mean, you make it clear in your book that there were there, it wasn't really a Spanish disease. And the Spaniards, in fact, got rather irritated about um, the fact that it was characterized as Spanish. But what what was this disease? So um, it was flu. It was a, a strain of flu. Um, flu happens to be the disease that lends itself most easily to pandemics um, because it's a virus that changes very readily and, and it's very labile. Um, and so you get new strains emerging all the time. 
And every now and then a strain emerges, which is both very virulent and very highly transmissible, very contagious. And that can cause a, a pandemic. And we've had probably 15 flu pandemics in the last 500 years. So it, these things happen. Um, and in fact, one of the big questions today is about why 1918 was so bad, so much worse than any other flu pandemic that's ever been measured. Um, but to, to go to just how bad it was, it's um, estimated to have infected one in three people on Earth or 500 million people at the time um, and to have killed between 50 and 100 million of them. So that equates to about 2.5 to 5 percent of the global population. Um, and just to put those numbers in perspective, the First World War is supposed to have killed 18 million people and the Second World War, 50 to 60 million people. So it probably killed more than either of those and possibly more than both put together. Um, and it struck in three waves, um, a, a mild first wave in the early months of 1918, a very lethal second wave uh, later that year, and a third wave in the early months of 1919 that was intermediate in severity uh, between the other two. This is, this is one of the most striking and sort of shocking moments in your account, is, the, is when you bring out the lethality of that second wave. Mm. And, and of course, it's, it's terrifying to imagine that um, SARS-CoV-2 could have a second wave in store like that. Um, we, we, we don't need to speculate on that, but, but um, certainly the second wave was much worse than the first, and it seems to have been, you know, symptomatically different. You, you refer to people going dark blue, bluish, or their, their skin blackening from the, from the hands up their arms and, and extremities, um, yeah. and so on. Uh, Reminiscent in some ways of the appearance of cholera, people dying of cholera. So. Why Why was, do we know why the second wave was so much worse than the first? Well, so there are theories. We don't know for sure. One, I think, is quite convincing because it's based on um, uh, comparisons of the, of the genome sequence of the strains that caused the first and second waves, suggests that the virus mutated between the two. Um, and what's interesting about that is that um, it mutated, it looks like, to become very much more contagious. So the idea is that the pandemic strain, which was very virulent, emerged in the early months of 1918 through a background of milder seasonal flu, other strains. Mm. Um, and so it was diluted, diluted in a certain sense, and it didn't spread very easily on its own. Then it mutated in the spring, and then it came back in late August, and it was by that time highly contagious. So it was the pure pandemic strain at that point, not diluted by seasonal flu, and very highly contagious. And so you saw some of those symptoms in the spring, but they were relatively rare. Uh, and in, in the autumn, they just became more common. In fact, just to give you an indication, the vast majority of those 50 million deaths occurred in the 13 weeks between the middle of September and the middle of December 1918. So in a sense, although the whole thing kind of was spread over three-ish years, um, the, the core of it was extremely rapid. That's an extraordinarily intense dying off, isn't it? Really, really mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. Um, how did the, you know, I mean, you, there's a lovely moment in the book, which is actually characteristic of the, of the writing, I think, as a whole, where you, you describe this moment of 19, this, this period in history of 1918 as a moment where, where the, uh, uh, well, you describe that world as a world which knew the motor car, but felt more comfortable with the mule, you know, <laughs> which believed both in quantum theory and in witchcraft. Um, and I, I like that very much. And, I, and you know, what, what did the medical experts of 1918, what did medical expertise make of this disease? I mean, 
good question. I suppose any snapshot of the world that you took would find it staggered between various uh, modes of thought. But I think what's interesting about that with respect to the pandemic is that germ theory, which had kind of been invented in the previous century, was not accepted across the whole globe as it is now, pretty much. Um, mm. So the idea that microbes cause infectious disease was not widely accepted. And there were all sorts of medieval ideas still circulating, you know, about miasma and noxious air. And um, and that all kind of came together with with um, conspiracy theories and, and horror stories about, you know, um, bad air lifting off the, the um, battlefields of Flanders and drifting over the world and causing this scourge. Um, but uh, so obviously, germ theory did exist and the scientists and the medics at least in the west had embraced it and so they understood about microbial causes of disease but then virus because flu is a viral disease virus was a relatively new concept even to them the first viruses had not been identified until the the end of the previous century the 19th century and so their sort of knee-jerk reaction when this disease erupted was to assume that it was bacterial almost every doctor in the world thought they were dealing with a bacterial disease um, and uh, that meant that they uh, did not have any kind of uh, reliable diagnostic test, as you suggested from your hinting at the symptoms. It was not a flu that looked like flu. I mean, it was very easy to mistake for other things. Mm. And, it, and, and the blueness of the face did um, recall cholera. And there were other things that recalled typhoid. And flu-like symptoms actually go along with a lot of different diseases. And then people would bleed from their noses and, and mouths. And that suggested plague, pneumonic plague. Mm. So there was much confusion. Um, and when it came to uh, treating it, of course, the treatments followed those diagnoses. If the doctor thought he was dealing with typhoid, then he would you know, prescribe things that he felt would work for typhoid. Um, but in fact, they had very little in their medicine cabinet. They didn't have they, they could make vaccines. Obviously, vaccination was an older concept, but they were making vaccines to the bacteria that they found opportunistically uh, um, invading the respiratory tracts of those who had caught the virus. Um, and, and counterintuitively, those were sometimes a little bit effective because they could work against the bacteria which caused pneumonia, and it was the pneumonia that killed most of the victims of the Spanish flu. But in general, they were not very effective. They didn't have any antibiotics because those didn't come in until after the Second World War, would have also perhaps worked against the pneumonia. And they didn't have any antiviral drugs uh, which weren't invented until the 1960s. So um, what did they have? They had aspirin, the so-called wonder drug, which can um, lower inflammation. And essentially what they were looking at, as we are today, in fact, with COVID-19, was a massive inflammatory response in the lungs. So that could be effective, but they really didn't know at that time much about dosing, what makes a medicine, what turns a medicine into a poison. So very often, because it's the only thing they had that worked, they gave too much of it. And sometimes they aggravated the symptoms rather than ameliorating them. Um, and so when people saw that nothing was really working, they turned to all kinds of weird and wonderful folk medicines and fake medicines and religious uh, cures, prayer and so on. And they tried everything because that's what you do when you're frightened. Yes, you mentioned macabre wedding ceremonies amongst the, the uh, Jewish communities of, of Odessa <laughs> and New York, um, you know, falling back on folk religion as a, just in sheer desperation in the face of this epidemic. Uh, yes, um, the, the so-called Black Wedding where two... Um, uh, often beggars or other otherwise marginalised members of society, complete strangers to each other, were married to each other in a cemetery with a great big party, um, and that was supposed to ward off plague. 
Um, and that happened in Odessa. It was it, it, it was uh, quite common in Eastern Europe um, at various points in history. But what was fascinating was you, there are also newspaper reports of them in Mount Hebron Cemetery in New York and in Winnipeg in Canada. So um, it was actually considered rather blasphemous by rabbis at the time. It was something that had you know been sort of suppressed by mm. uh, Jewish communities. But it came back sometimes with rabbis' blessing and sometimes not. Um, again, as an indication, I think, of how terrified people were of what was going on. And yes. also, I think you have to remember the context of the world at the time, you know, four grinding years of war, people were psychologically worn down. And I think that probably made it a little bit easier to flip back to kind of pre-Darwinian mystical explanations of what was happening to them. Yes, and and I was also fascinated and couldn't help but be struck by the contemporary parallels. Um, by, first, by, by your account of, of the, the sort of wild goose chases for various bacilli and so on, Pfeiffer's bacillus and a range of other um, mm -hmm. possible culprits, and none of which led in the direction of the true etiology of the disease, the true viral etiology of the disease. But um, also people reaching, you, you just mentioned aspirin, but there's also a sort of fashionable reaching for quinine, the, the mm -hmm. antiviral drug. And of course, I couldn't help think there of, of the American presidents, the current enthusiasm for hydroxychloroquine. Uh, yeah, spooky, another anti-malarial, yeah. Absolutely. Um, whose who's effectiveness in dealing with this disease, of course, is as unproven as the effectiveness of quinine in dealing with um, the Spanish influenza. Mm. But, um, how how did how did we get in the end to an understanding of the viral etiology of this disease? When did that happen? Well, actually, it happened um, a little bit even while the pandemic was raging. There were mm. there were doctors um, in the United States, in the UK, um, or or at least British doctors in military bases in France, and French doctors, and then gradually people in other parts of the world who began to wonder if this was. Um, uh, actually caused by what they referred to as a filterable virus because viruses are much tinier than bacteria and they had porcelain filters which they would put an infected fluid through and this filter could catch the bacteria but it couldn't catch the the viruses hence the name and they began to do sorts of experiments to test whether the agent of disease was one of these tiny viruses or or, or a bacteria with which they're more familiar and there was all kinds of sort of self-experimentation rather selfless self-experimentation very brave almost foolhardy you might say where people um you know ingested or injected or, or otherwise exposed themselves doctors i'm talking about um, to uh, fluids taken from sick patients, patients sick with flu, um, filtered or unfiltered, in order to try and test what was this microbe causing all this damage. Um, and some of those uh, experiments were brought those doctors to the conclusion that they were dealing with a virus, and some of them were even published before the pandemic was over. So um, I think there's so much that's so fascinating about that. It, it, a lot of their science was flawed, not necessarily through their own fault, but because it was impossible to shut out this ubiquitous germ, which was everywhere in the world from the places where they were doing their experiments and therefore to be sure by which channel that they had caught it. Um, but uh, quite an amazing sort of outpouring of scientific creativity in the, in the, you know, while the war and the pandemic were raging and written up and published and shared so that people knew what, what other scientists were doing in other, other countries. It's quite extraordinary. And also the whole auto experimentation thing. Uh, it, it was an era of that. It was a time when people did expose themselves to almost often lethal diseases in order to understand their causes. But I did wonder in my book if it was easier to do that, to expose oneself to such risks 
when basically everyone around you was doing it, when people, you know, soldiers were risking their lives on the front line. Yes, that's very interesting. I mean, you you make uh, an interesting observation about these these paths towards better knowledge of the of the nature of the of the disease when you say that um, they they were often right for the wrong reasons. I mean that they mm-hmm. arrived at the right what we now know in retrospect of being good conclusions, but on the basis of very flawed experimentation. And I think that you know the history of science is full of episodes. Like I know, so many pitfalls. And there were those who were wrong for the right reasons as well. They followed the data, but they didn't have necessarily the tools to get the right answers. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is an extraordinary lesson in, in how how fragile really the scientific method is, I think. Absolutely. And I was, and I was very um, struck by the by your description of this this medical altruism, and which, which raises another question. I mean, one of the interesting things about these pandemic experiences is that one expects them in a kind of folkloric way to produce, you know, Saturnalian outbursts of, of disorder and, um, you know, a kind of Hobbesian collapse of, of, uh, of self, self-constraint. But actually they don't. They, they might, in, as a routine, in, a, in, a, in general, they tend to produce, you know, very ordinary kinds of mutual help and altruism. You make that, there's a chapter in your book about that as well. Yes. I mean, I tend to say that pandemics, um, I'm not an expert on all pandemics. I've studied one to death, but um, well, that's an unfortunate expression. But uh, um, (laughs) let's compare it with this one. They they do seem to bring out the very best and the very worst. And again, this time you've seen, you know, the community solidarity, the clapping on the balconies, the singing together. But also you've seen the stockpiling and the profiteering and. Uh, you know, criminals uh, exploiting empty houses and so on. So, I mean, I think it it, it has always, and, and, and the xenophobia, importantly, mm-hmm. uh, it always brings out both. There's an interesting psychological idea, um, which I think applies, and that's of um, collective resilience. It's the idea that we all come together more tightly uh, when there's an external threat to us as a collectivity, um, because essentially we begin to define ourselves as the group Men, you know, menaced by that threat. So we become a new I, a new collective I, and we work together to combat that threat. Mm. And what's interesting about that theory is that that resilience, that collective resilience, uh, is is predicted to sort of start falling apart once the threat recedes and we, we, we go back to identifying as individuals rather than as a group. And, and, and that's the point where the bad behavior um, emerges. And there's some anecdotal evidence from 1918 for that. And maybe we could study that again this time. Yes, well, I, <laughs> there are already signs that the like, <laughs> yeah. patterns are, are fraying uh, in various places, especially the United States right now. Um, mm. So there are parallels there. Uh, of course, these, these events, put they, they put pressure on individuals collectively and as, as, as members of societies, but they also expose government, don't they, and place decision makers under, under great pressure. How did governments respond to the challenge of, of pandemic disease in 1918, and how effective, how much difference did their responses make? So, I mean, it's, it, it has been said that 1918 was essentially a pandemic that ran its natural course, mm. meaning that although public health measures were put in some put in place in some parts of the world, um, notably the United States. Um, they they were variable, they were patchy, they were not often they were often not very coherent and they were often not kept in place for long enough. Um, there are some, you know, notable exceptions to that, but when you're talking about the whole globe, you have to make some generalizations. Um, and 
you know, the, the, it was relatively rare for people to understand the concept of public health, the concept that governments might intervene in your in your life, your private life, to tell you what to do for the collective good in a health sense. Mm. So the Americans were used to that. I mean, in New York, for example, they they declared war 20 years earlier on TB, so you could get fined and even put into prison for spitting in the street if you did it too much. Um, but that was a very foreign idea in Brazil or in India. Um, and, uh, you know, many people in those countries didn't even have access to any kind of health care. Obviously, this was before socialized medicine, though the idea had been touted by then. So, um, yeah, it, it, in that in that particular sense, it was a very different world from today. But you you it's very interesting when you, you I grew up in Australia and and um one of the interesting points you make in the book is that the Australians introduced a, a quarantine in the face of the first wave because, of course, they had prior knowledge. They could see this this mm -hmm. coming their, their way, and that was highly effective. But then they dropped their guard too early, and uh, and th so they they uh, uh, protected themselves as it were against the second wave. I think is what you what you uh, you explained. Yeah. But then they dropped their guard too early and were hit quite badly by the third wave, which then killed twelve thousand Australians. Um, so clearly, government actions or reactions made a difference and there's there's one example in your book which i was really struck me and that's the 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 difference the contrast between the experience of um, the mortalities in u.s and new zealand controlled samoa in the pacific yeah yes um so uh western samoa had one of the highest death rates um of any country in the world i think it was around 23 24 percent so one in practically four per people died there. American Samoa had um, almost no uh, flu deaths. And that's because um, the uh, the um, local governor saw it coming, understood that his um, population would be vulnerable because often remote um, isolated populations were um, more vulnerable, lacked historical exposure to these diseases. And so you know, or were more susceptible. And, and he put in place um, a, a quarantine in American Samoa. Um, so, yeah, it, it, the government could make a difference. And islands are a little bit of a special case because it's easier to protect your borders. Mm. Um, but, uh, yes, you, de you definitely did see some very um, stark differences like that. In fact, one of the other places that had um, an extremely high uh, death rate was Persia, which was pretty much a failed state at that time. Um, being fought over by um, in, in the so-called great game uh, between the Axis and the Allied uh, centers of power. Mm. Um, no really powerful government of its own um, and uh, no real strategy to combat the flu when it arrived and nobody who really cared about doing that locally. So, um, you know, th there is definitely a correlation between good governance and um, and uh, and a good outcome, uh, but it's not the only factor. Far from it. And there's one very bleak um, and sort of stark uh, exemplary episode in the book: the, the the events at Bristol Bay. I mean, what happened at Bristol Bay in Alaska, and and why? Yeah, so Bristol Bay is is quite a shocking example because it recorded a 40% death rate from that flu, um, and uh, Alaska was not yet fully a part of the United States, but it was um, was it a protectorate? I can't remember the word at the time, but it was um, on its way to becoming a state, but not yet. Um, and uh, when you think that the death rate in New York, for example, was 0.5%, I mean that was a staggering difference, and essentially it comes down to um 
So Bristol Bay is is um, is the eastern arm of the Bering Sea, and it basically was frozen over throughout the autumn and winter of 1918, and that protected it from that lethal second wave. But when the ice melted the following spring and the first fishing boats came in, they brought the flu. So the one and terrible wave of flu that affected Bristol Bay was that third one. And the rest of the United States had by then basically suffered the worst and didn't consider it necessary to put in place new um, serious public health measures for the third wave. And so uh, unfortunately, Alaska got almost no help from the federal government. Um, on top of that, it was a very poor, very um, uh, dispersed population in a remote part of the world. Uh, many of the villages inaccessible except by sled and foot. Um, uh, and, you know, had this um, historic lack of historical exposure or predisposition of some kind, perhaps partly genetic, um, that made them very vulnerable indeed. Fascinating. And you also make it clear that there are, uh, well, that's to say it's, it's something that's very clear in the, cover, in the current situation, that there are um, ethnic vulnerabilities or ethnicities can be a factor in, in determining vulnerability to this disease, especially when ethnicity and, po and poverty you know, are correlated. And mm. I was wondering, is that a big feature of the pandemic? It, does it strike some groups uh, worse than it strikes others? Absolutely. I mean, it depends. Um, uh, so flu was always called a democratic disease. And it's true that flu doesn't in any way discriminate between the people uh, it it infects, but the society it strikes is not democratic. And um, so it always highlights inequality in that society. It did in 1918, it continues to do so today. Um, and uh, it's always the poorest, the workers, the immigrants, often um, the uh, often the ethnic minorities um, who suffer in rich countries. And then there's also a kind of um, disparity between rich and poor countries. So one of the really curious things about 1918 is that, that we know most about what happened in uh, the United States, North America and Europe because um, uh, data was collected there and, uh, you know, books have been written about what happened there. But um, Asia and Africa were the continents that bore the brunt of it, that had the highest death rates in so um, there is this kind of weird disjunct between what we know about it and what, you know, what the, what the reality was. Um, and uh, again, yes, COVID is revealing those inequalities yet again. Yes, it's interesting because we, we, we might think of these pathogens as just sort of diffusing across a, a, a billiard table like smooth space, undifferentiated space. But in fact, of course, as you make clear, their trajectory is refracted through all kinds of structures of you know, inequality and disadvantage, which uh, which are internal to those to the societies that it affects. Um, there was, you know, in in recent in the last uh, couple of months, there's been a lot of um, blaming or blame gaming going on. Uh, ominous questions asked about the origins. Where did it come from? The origins of SARS-CoV-2. Um, was it produced in a laboratory, or was it the result of some kind of laboratory work? Um, is it a Chinese virus? Is it from somewhere else? As it happens, in the case of the, the so-called Spanish influenza, we actually don't know where it came from. We, we know that it didn't come from Spain, but we don't, <laughs> we don't know where it really, for sure, where it did come from. No, absolutely. In fact, one of the few things we are certain about is that it didn't come from Spain. Um, I mean, it was called the Spanish flu because Spain was neutral and didn't censor its press and so mentioned the first cases that erupted there, whereas other countries censored that news, mm. uh, even though they had it first. 
the the three theories um, are, correspond to origins um, in China, in a British military base at Etape in uh, northern France, and uh, to Kansas in America. Um, those are the three theories on the table today about the origins of the so-called Spanish flu. And as we speak, we can't choose between them, although it's a very active question. People are still working on it, and we may one day have an answer. It's not impossible. And that patient zero, whose name we, we don't know and possibly never will know, that patient zero is someone who contracted the virus from an animal. Is that right? It would, that, that was the original zoonotic moment when the, the virus moved into a human being? Yes, that was the spillover moment. Um, and the, the idea is that when the virus first spills over, uh, whatever virus you're talking about, it's very often not very transmissible. Um, it has to learn to be transmissible, if you like. It requires it to accumulate certain molecular changes, certain mutations. Um, and so often when you're looking to pinpoint the start of a pandemic, to find that patient zero, you're looking for a very tiny outbreak because it would have fizzled out quite quickly. Mm. Um, and that's what's make, what makes it hard to identify. So the first officially recorded cases of the Spanish flu were at a Camp, um, Camp Funston in, uh, in Kansas in uh, March, early March of 1918. But on the morning of that day, one um, soldier reported to the sanatorium and um, by lunchtime it was overflowing. So that was already a very transmissible virus, which is why scientists are looking for earlier outbreaks that might have gone um, not very well recorded because people didn't think much about them because not many people died. And perhaps it was in a remote farming village or something in Kansas uh, or in China. Um, so that's the problem. When you're trying to pinpoint it, you're looking for something almost invisible. Well, we're coming to uh, an end now, sadly, of the, the, to this fa fascinating conversation. But um, just a, 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 a small question, <laughs> small question to close with. Um, do you think the world was a different place after this pandemic? I mean, the world is always becoming different, of course. That's what history yeah. is. But was it was it changed by the pandemic? I mean, I think it was changed quite dramatically. If you just think about the demography, um, you know, the humanity that went into it is not the humanity that came out, and the humanity who had got purged were, um, you know, very often the 20 to 40 year olds, the people in the prime of life, the most mm. active, the parents, the soldiers, the um, pillars of community. Um, and at a time when there was little or no so social welfare net to speak of. So all the people who depended on those ones, so the small children and the, and the elderly, for example, were left without, very often without any visible means of support. So I mean, that's why I think it was so tragic. It wasn't just the scale of the death. It was the transformation of the lives who were left, of the people who were left behind. Um, I mean, we could also talk about the political and the social and the cultural implications. But I think just to focus on what it did to humanity and the, and the generation it wiped out, I think that gives you a little bit of a sense of how it changed us. Yeah. Um... I mean, you, there are dozens and dozens of fascinating counterfactuals embedded in this narrative. I mean, one is, you know, you mentioned the death of Sviatlov, the, um, the, the Bolshevik leader, um, mm. someone who, had he survived, might well have kept um, someone like um, Joseph Stalin in check, or at least have made him unnecessary, as it were. Um, so wonderful conversations for hours about this. Absolutely, the, the, the parlor game of a certain kind of historian. So um, now coming to an end and, and thinking again about the contemporary parallels, um, 
you know, uh, we, 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 we know that um, there's been this sort of battle of words between Xi Jinping and Trump. In particular, Trump insists on calling it the Chinese virus, keeps on saying there are questions we need to ask, unanswered questions uh, we need to ask of the Chinese. Uh, we know that there have been geopolitical um, waves of geopolitical uncertainty around this disease. The relationship with Taiwan um, has cooled and there's been a closing of borders there. Um, there are signs of an imminent crackdown in Hong Kong um, in the, under the auspices of new security laws. Um, you discuss the geopolitics of the, of the disease in a, in a fascinating article in New Statesman. Um, how do you see the, 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 the COVID panning out today in terms of its geopolitical effects on the world that we're, we're now in? I mean, one of the arguments in my book was that a, a pandemic is not just biological, it's social and political. I mean, you know, the, ve the, 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 the legacy of the name just just is a testament to that. You know, Spanish flu named for the for the country in Europe that was neutral. Um, and here we are in the middle of a trade war between the US and China. And that is leaving a huge impact on on, on this pandemic, this slanging match over what to call it, over where it came from. I mean, you know, Camus said in his book, uh, the plague, uh, 1947. That, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, that the you know pandemic is not something that's made to man's measure, and it's not. And I think it's really interesting the way that we always attempt to nationalise it. Mm. Even if you look at the vaccine race. So there are you know teams all over the world racing to develop a vaccine now, and they are. The reality is they're all international collaborations, almost without exception. And yet each country, you can see it in our own British newspapers, is backing their local team, you know. And and and, and, and the negative side of that, of course, is the calling it the Wuhan disease and the Chinese virus and pointing fingers and talking about wet markets and um, Chinese eating habits and so on. I mean, it, we try to nationalise it, but unfortunately the virus doesn't fit into our nice little pigeonholes and it always defies that classification. Um, but that is what we try to do. And maybe that also feeds back into the issue of uh, memory and it, because it doesn't fit our pigeonholes. We find it harder to remember. The, 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 this virus is accentuating some of our less likable characteristics as a species. Do you think there are any going to be any positive lessons or consequences? I do, I do. I mean, look at look at 1918. Science took a huge uh, jump forward afterwards because basically scientists and doctors realized they'd been caught out. Um, and there was a lot they didn't know. And, and you know, it was a, it was a humbling experience for them. So, um, you know, you see epidemiology take off, virology take off. Uh, the first flu vaccines, genuine flu vaccines against the virus were, were, were generated um, in the 1930s. So, you know, it was a huge stimulus and, and not just scientifically, but in other areas of life as well. And, and we are, we're a species that learns and adapts and that's why we're so, so successful. I mean, sometimes you could argue it'd be better if we learned a little bit more rapidly and, and, and more profoundly from each epidemic and pandemic we experience, but we do learn and, uh, and you can see that clearly in history. Laura Spinney, thank you so much for joining me in this uh, conversation about the historical dimension of our current, our current struggles and uh, talking to us about the Spanish flu of 1918. Thank you so much. My pleasure.